Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Crystal Bell. You can connect with Crystal at her LinkedIn page, Crystal Bell, and she is a member of the Reboot team. Reboot is an organization that does tremendous executive and leadership coaching. And so you can connect with her at her Reboot page as well. Additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. And Crystal has selected the organization Econi, E-K-O-N-E, Ranch. Econi Ranch and the places you can connect with Crystal are linked in the show notes. And Crystal has such a fascinating background. Before she made her soiree into coaching, she brings 20 plus years of forensics and crime scene investigation experience into her work. And so we explore a lot about how that informs the way that she sees herself, sees the world, sees humanity, and how crime scene investigation has taught her so many skills, attention to detail. It's also taught her to pay really close attention to how the human body works. And in the space of transformation, leadership coaching, executive coaching, it's becoming more and more popular for really good reason. We need to pay so much more attention to our body. There's so much emphasis placed on our intellect and our mind and not nearly enough attention to the body. So a lot of what Crystal does in her coaching work is very body-based and we explore that in this conversation. And another focal point here is that Crystal went on a vision quest where she was alone for three days in the wilderness without food. And There's no magic pill for transformation, but I'm always fascinated by the way that experiences like this teach us about how we can shift in our everyday life, whether it's through an experience like this or psychedelics or otherwise. Ayahuasca is another popular one. I think we can learn a lot from hearing other people's stories and experiences. And Crystal was a wonderfully open book in this conversation. We explore so much more, and I'll let her take it from here. So with all of that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Crystal Bell. Crystal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yes, it's it's so nice to have you here. I'm really looking forward to, man, we, we teed up so many things that I'm really jazzed up about. And we'll see what we actually get to. But as you know, I like to start my conversations in the same manner. And it's it's kind of a two-parter. I want to know what you were like as a child. So keeping that in the back of your mind. The first question I ask every interview is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Mm -hmm. Well, Mike, first of all, it's so good to be here with you. And I really, really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. And as I think back on my childhood and what was it like at my dinner table, I'm drawn back to the time when I was living with my grandparents. My sister and I lived with my grandparents and my aunts and uncles from the time I was about eight until I was 12. And 
I think those are some of the fullest, richest dinners that I remember from my childhood because there were lots of us and there was always family around. And my grandparents, both my grandmother and my grandfather cooked. And so while we didn't always love the food, what we did love was being with them and being with cousins and aunts and uncles. And we were very close knit. My grandmother's nine brothers and sisters lived in the same town that we lived in. And so everyone was always coming over. And so dinner was it never really felt like it was just us. It was always cousins, aunts, uncles, friends, people would drop in. You know, we were pretty, I think, pretty casual in terms of having people casually stop over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was never a big deal and there was always enough food. So that's what I remember from my childhood. And I don't I don't remember the conversations really. I just remember us checking in on each other and seeing Mm. how everyone was doing. And, you know, we didn't get any into any lengthy discussions about politics, but it was, it felt really, really relational. And so that's what I remember of my, of my childhood dinners growing up, Mm. sitting around the table and just big meals and a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It evokes for me, like a lot of times in in movies when dinner is portrayed, there's lots of different flavors of what a dinner table experience might look like. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw Sopranos, but uh, the TV show, The Sopranos, there's a, it's kind of a stale dinner table. You can tell that they all have, you know, lives outside of the family that they're more enriched by, especially Tony. And uh, the ones I'm most drawn to are kind of what you're describing. I'm, I'm getting this image of a really big family gathering and and uh, maybe a slogan or motto of everyone's everyone's welcome here. The, the, the casualness that you're describing of mm-hmm. any just come on in, plenty of food here. And <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. I love that kind of the, the vibe, the welcoming vibe that you're describing. Yeah, I'm I'm it's actually making me go back. I do go v- back and visit my family every year and I've done that for many many years. They live a few thousand miles away across a number of states, but even now like there's not one table that we all sit around. It doesn't feel traditional in that sense. Mm-hmm. We might be sitting at different tables. There might be, you know, we're out in the family room. There might be some people sitting at the couch, some people sitting at the table. You know, we got plates of food. People are talking over each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's crosstalk and lots of just really rich conversations. It's not like it is not a quiet dinner, but <laughs> it feels rich and loving and Whenever I visit now, you know, usually bring the kids back so they get to taste some of that experience too. And the every time the night before I leave, we always do like a going away dinner so that everyone can come by the house and there's always, you know, food on the stove and you can drop in whatever and you can drop in whenever. And it just feels very, very connected. And you just grab what you want to eat and you know the tv might be on okay the tv's always on <laughs> so <laughs> there's the din of that noise but but yeah those are it just feels like such a great memory and and a memory that i still get to live even though my dinners here at home <laughs> feel very different with our small nuclear family but yeah mm-hmm. well before i get into the work that has largely shaped your professional life. I, I would love to also get to know a little bit about what you were like as a child. 
Oh boy. <laughs> I was a really curious child. I love to observe and I love to follow around adults to see what they were doing. And actually my nickname was Shadow as as a really young kid and I didn't necessarily want to talk or I wasn't very talkative. I didn't need to have a lot of conversation, but it was really about observing. And so I would observe my grandfather in the garden. I would sit next to my mom when she was reading. I'd go visiting with my grandmother. I just wanted to be near them. And so I was watchful. I was an observant kid. I talked a little bit about curiosity. And my mom tells a story about the first time that she knew that I might, you know, potentially be interested in science as a kid. I think it was about three. And I had this, I think I had gotten a, a Fisher Price flashlight that had these little colored discs that you would slip in front of the light. And the discs were red, yellow, and blue, obviously the primary colors. And I was sitting on the couch and my sister was sitting next to me. My sister was watching TV. And I discovered that if you put the blue disc in front of the yellow one, it would make green. And you know, it like blew my mind at three years old. And, you know, my mom's like, it took you a while to be able to pronounce your R's. And so she remembers me saying, look, I made green. And <laughs> it was so exciting. And I was playing around with all these colors and putting the different discs in front of each other. And it, I was in awe, apparently. And that felt like, you know, an early foray into my curiosity. I was also really particular. <laughs> something that something that my family likes to remind me of now, but <laughs> I liked things I liked things to make sense and I liked things to be orderly and to make sense in my mind even if my mind wasn't necessarily like what was on everyone else's mind. I just needed things in a particular way. So there was something like meticulous about my mindset as a kid. So yeah, intense would be the other word <laughs> to describe <laughs> me as a kid. <laughs> and I think that's something that's definitely carried on into my adulthood, which I now embrace my myself in, in the fullness of my intensity. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just, I was curious and studious and I had a, a great memory. I played concentration. I would beat everyone at concentration. Yeah, yeah. And I loved being outside. I love the natural world and making mud pies and mixing things together and seeing what would happen. So mm. that, that was that was me as a kid. Mm. We seem to share a lot in common, Crystal. <laughs> I one of my favorite memories with my paternal grandfather, who I don't have that many memories with, was playing concentration with him. And he he wasn't the most complimentary person, but he he appreciated the mind that I had. My my memory, like yours, was very good. And concentration, for listeners who don't know, it's a full the full deck of cards is laid out on a table, and you have to match. Like if you pick up one random card and it's a seven, you have to try and match it with another seven. And the point of the game, right, is to to memorize where okay. It didn't match that I picked up a seven and a queen, but now I know there's a seven and a queen there. So if I, if I pick up another seven, then I know I need to pick up that seven. I, I hope I'm doing it justice, but I, yeah. I shared I shared being particular as well. I my parents joke with me 
that, you know, those, those plates that are, they're sectioned off. There's like one that takes, there's a section that takes up half the plate. And then the second half of the plate is then sectioned off into quarters, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. So my, I would always have the protein in the big part. And then my, I, I didn't even eat vegetables because I was very particular, but it'd be one starch in its own corner of the plate and the other starch on the other part. None of the foods could touch. They had to be in the right order for me. So I, I share that with you. <laughs> oh, and... you are igniting so many, many memories right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bruises on bananas, totally a no-go. Like my mother would literally bite the bruise off the banana and hand it back and I would mm -hmm. stop crying. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can eat this now. So yeah, I'll, I'll add one more thing that I loved as a kid and it was, it was sports. It was athletic. Mm -hmm. That was that was another huge theme and playing organized sports starting when I was about, I don't know, 12 years old was really, really big and has been another theme throughout my life. But that's been with me since I was since I was little. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, uh, it's time to talk forensics. And yeah. I, I would say, <laughs> based on how you described yourself as a child, you, I imagine that it, it made a lot of people around you weren't that surprised when you ended up in forensics. Is that right? They were not surprised. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so what? how would you describe what brought you into forensics? And I know you spent a lot of time in that field. And so there's, there's a lot of ways that you could address this question. But what were you most drawn to about forensics? And how would you say that has served the crystal of today? Mm. I think what drew me in the most is that I've always had a deep love and reverence for mystery and also for questions, for inquiry. So that's really what took me in because I saw it as a path where I could look for and potentially find things that could not otherwise be seen. Hmm. And yeah, just being able to unearth what is not known and just adding up all of the, like, if I know this and I know this and I know this piece, like how do those play together? And what does that mean in the context of this scenario or this case? So that's what really drew me in is that you know, just continuing my love of science and my love of inquiry and and mystery. And I was also fascinated by the human body. So, you know, there are many different subject matters or disciplines, as we call them in forensics. And, you know, there's looking at firearms evidence, like bullets and guns, and there's DNA and there's fingerprints and toxicology and all sorts of other things. But what I was really drawn to was actually the stuff that involved the body. So I was I was a crime scene examiner and I was also a forensic biologist. So that meant I spent a lot of time looking for various body fluids. So yeah, I mean, I think when I was in college, I remember just being so fascinated by anatomy and I had the opportunity to do a program where at the med school hospitals where we did a cadaver lab. And so just being as close to that as possible gave me that opportunity. So it was really just tapping into that love that I've always had since I was a kid. That's what drew me into forensics. 
And, you know, I've had many people ask over the years about, well, didn't it gross you out or isn't it kind of creepy or disturbing? And for as disturbing as it can be to be a crime scene examiner, what was overshadowed by that was just my love of the questions and my love of like the body and figuring things out and answering those sorts of questions. So that is what pulled me in. Yeah. So I'm struck. What I'm struck by right now is actually at, at a really high level. If I just said I'm really drawn to inquiry and mystery and the human body that could, you could say that about coaching too, right? That people in coaching love those things too. Like the mystery complexity of life, deep inquiry, curiosity, and, and the body seems really integral, at least in the coaching that has been most transformational in my vantage point and in my personal experience, a lot of it happens through the body. So I'm, I'm struck by that, but I would love to unpack, like you were in forensics for what, 15 to 20 years or so? 20 years. Yeah. And I imagine that for the better part of it, it was a very fulfilling career for you that you you learned a lot from it i did yeah hugely fulfilling lots of different experiences that are very unique and that you know most people in the world will will never have will never know what it's like to be behind the crime scene tape yeah Mm -hmm. so a two-parter here is how how did you most develop in your career in forensics and then also like when when did it start to feel like something else maybe is emerging here because you're not there anymore. Right. I'm sorry. You're going to have to ask me the first part of that question one more time. Yeah. How did you most learn, grow, and develop in the field of forensics? I think my the most learning and growth and development that I got was from just being being responsible for for really high stakes work you know where you don't want to make mistakes and you know there's there's something about getting it right mm-hmm. and being able to represent what you did you know whether that's in a court of law whether it's in a report and so that was tremendous learning for me just to step into the type of leadership that it takes to hold that much responsibility there's tremendous learning from from the work that I did doing homicide response and going to crime scenes. Because when you do that, like I would go out, sometimes I would be by myself, but often we were in teams of two. And people were waiting for you to get there so that you could do the really important piece of analyzing what happened. And so holding that kind of responsibility and also what it takes to stay centered and grounded and not be undone by what you're seeing and what you're experiencing and what you're witnessing. It just, that was huge growth for me. That was huge growth of like, how do I keep myself safe? How do I take on this tremendous responsibility and, and be a leader at this really important thing where we have one opportunity to do this? You have like one opportunity to to get it right and to collect everything that you need to collect and to interpret and analyze everything that you need to interpret. And so there was really big learning for me there and stepping into my leadership seat. And let's see, there's there's more. 
the other piece of learning was about, you know, there's a lot of trauma in the work. And obviously as a crime scene examiner and working working homicide cases, but also the work that I did as a biologist and working child abuse cases and sex crimes and physical assaults and, you know, what we think of as major violent crimes. And there was a way in which I could have chosen to kind of shut myself off to, and, and, you know, there's a choice you need to make. Are you going to be cynical or are you going to not be? And I think there was tremendous growth there because I had to figure out my own way and I had to figure out how to do it in a way that felt like it was of integrity for me, which contrary to some of the advice that I was given, I had to do things differently and I didn't really have anyone to model how to do it differently, how to stay really human in the work and also not to not to get overly emotionally involved but to recognize that you know i was a human too and it was going to affect me and i was going to carry this stuff with me and so part of the learning was like how can i do this and how can i make it sustainable and still be the human that i want to be mm-hmm. and not not someone else's like bad projection or bad idea of of what it means to do this. Cause I was given a lot of bad advice. I think, I think that's, that's a piece of what I'm saying here is I was given some bad advice, you know, shut off your emotions. Mm -hmm. When you go to a homicide, it's just a body. When you go to an autopsy, it's just a body. Don't think about it. But, you know, I came in with such reverence for the body and, you know, also knowing that I could never forget, you know, what it was like to be raised in a culture in like black American culture and, you know, with my family in particular. And, you know, it's like this in many black communities, but, you know, death rights and funeral rights were really sacred and really special. And so it was hard for me to operate differently in the realm of forensics than I would have in the world that didn't feel aligned. So this is all to say in answer to your question about, about the learnings, like, just figuring out my own way to stay really human. I mean, there was so much learning and development and walking into these situations that, you know, would threaten to just bring you to your knees, but no, you needed to stay standing Mm -hmm. and do the work. So yeah, a lot of learning there for me. Talking a lot about life. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to ask just very quickly, did you have intentional practices in terms of how you're able to stay human and centered in the face of, and I imagine there's, there's practices in connecting with what you believe to be true and not getting, not listening to all of that bad advice that you got, shut yourself mm-hmm. off. Don't feel emotions. Did you have practices at that time? Not at first. Yeah, when I first became a crime scene examiner in 2004, I did not and that was that was in the early part of my career. I did not have practices and I realized literally at my very first autopsy that I needed to develop them in order to do the work. And I I didn't I didn't know at that time and I couldn't know what they would look like. They just had to kind of unfold, but I started to develop practices 
just like on the job and in the moment. And as I took on more responsibility and as my cases became more complex and, you know, sometimes something really horrible would happen, like I would just like, let me see what I need to lean into so I can do this. So yeah, I, I developed them like on the job. And in a quick out breath, what would you say were a couple that were really helpful? Because to anyone who's listening right now, mm. I think whether whatever level of things we might be turning away from in our life, it doesn't have to be mm. a dead body. But there's there's a lot of times that we are brushed up with something that we're unwilling to feel like it feels like it's too much for us. And having practices to be like, no, I actually want to build the capacity to be able to feel and be a human in this thing that's challenging for me. Like for me, conflict is a really big one. If someone mm-hmm. raises their voice at me, or even if some, if I perceive that someone's not paying attention for me, really helpful for me to stay like centered in my body, in my heart, feeling like, yeah, that person, they might be ignoring me. And there's an uncomfortable sensation in my body. But any anyway, all this is is just pointing to the fact that this is really useful for anyone who's listening. And and what are what are some practices that were helpful for you to stay centered and and true to who you were? Mm. I think the first one was when I would actually go to a crime scene. And the crime scenes that I went to were usually homicide investigations. When I would go, I would think of my entering the space and my presence there as a sort of healing that was Mm. already starting. Mm. It wasn't, while there was all the enormity to, to deal with and, you know, there's there's a family who's going to be there. There are families who are going to be affected and people who are going to be deeply impacted. And when part of my practice was to start to think of my entry into that crime scene as like, okay, now the healing can start. Even if no one ever knows it, even if I never speak it aloud, what I'm carrying with me in my orientation toward the work is that I can I can bring in an act of kindness to someone who died in an unkind way. Mm. And that gave me tremendous power and control aren't quite the words, but it there there was something that that gave me some agency mm. about how I was going to show up. And so yeah, I mean I I also thought like you know, this person's family member is never going to know what happened behind the crime scene tape. But if I bring my full and open heart and recognizing this person's humanity to it, like, hopefully they will feel that in some way. I, I at least brought it into the air that I am breathing with this person in the place where they died. So that was a practice. And then the other one was just recognizing and sort of toggling between how I need to show up, like what is required of me, what is my job here, <laughs> and doing the job, like toggling between that and like how am I actually feeling inside, hmm. and recognizing and not shutting down what I'm feeling inside, but but it's almost 
looking one way towards here's the work I need to do, but then just gently turning my head back towards here's how I'm feeling and then acknowledging how I'm feeling like this is really awful. This really sucks. I got to take notes. I got to take photos. <laughs> you know, it was it was the toggle between the two that was really supportive for me. Like I can be here. There is something for me to do, but I'm also recognizing how this feels in the moment. So a body connection and a mind connection and that going back back and forth between them. Hmm. Well, a lot of profound wisdom there. There's a, there's a lot of power in the story we tell about how we're showing up to things and in allowing our experience to be what it is, which is what I'm hearing in, in your response there. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what brought you into coaching. It seems like you had a, you had a career that you really loved and that you found value in and it aligned in a lot of ways. And I know that we're ever evolving and changing and our, our interests change, we change. So what, what brought you into coaching? Let's see. In my, in my forensic career, you know, I was a forensic scientist doing, you know, casework. And then, but I always had these like pretty solid leadership skills And so I was tapped many times like, hey, do you want to do more? (laughs) And I didn't really want to answer that call. I was like, no, no, no. I really like what I'm doing. I'm I'm really good at this. I really love this. I don't want to manage people. Um, I don't want to manage people. I don't want to manage people. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, you know, I would reach these these roadblocks where it was like, I need more challenge. I want to do something different. I want to like, you know, I, I want to walk towards that growing edge. And so there I found myself in a in an executive level management position as the quality assurance manager for forensics for five different labs and about 150 people. And it was, and the the work was about making sure that people got things right. And I had a lot of I'll say I had a lot of misconceptions about that particular role as a leader. Mm-hmm. And so that was challenging and and I bumped up against them all the time. And so I realized like, oh my goodness, I need more skills. I need to to skill up like I'm good at this and I belong here, but I need some other skills and I didn't even know what coaching was at that time. And I happened to meet an executive coach and we started talking and I was like, oh, there's this whole world out there. And so I started kind of playing around with that a little bit. And then in the meantime, after four, after about four or five years in that position, I was promoted to director of forensics. So really in charge of like the whole show. And at that point, I was having a great time. It was a good, it was a good move for me. I was learning a lot, but I was also starting to feel like I was bumping up against something that was knocking and calling about like there is something else here. There's something more. And eventually I was like, I don't think I need to be running a program. Like this, this doesn't feel like a useful, this doesn't feel useful. It feels like there's something else for me to do. So it was, it was really like my challenge with, 
with leadership and needing to learn new skills that brought me into coaching and, and an awareness of coaching and that there were all these resources out there. And so when I started to dive into those, it just kind of ignited a bit of a fire in me. And I'm, I could tell a little story about that. Yeah. Oh <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So I actually met Jerry Colonna probably about five years ago. And this was Jerry is the CEO of Reboot, whom I work for now. And so I met Jerry at a gathering in in California at a retreat center, the On Being Gathering with uh, Krista Tippett and a group of loyal listeners from across the globe that came together. And that's where I met Jerry. And we really connected, kind of hit it off. We stayed in touch. Jerry actually invited me to a reboot leadership immersive retreat that absolutely blew my mind. And what I realized then was that I had been holding all of these questions that I didn't have the answers to, and I didn't even know how to access the answers, and I didn't know who could help with the answers. And so it was at that leadership retreat that I really, things really changed for me. That is where I learned about coaching. And I didn't want to be a coach at that point. I just wanted some relief <laughs> for my mm -hmm. soul. <laughs> and and so that is what, that was my first relationship with coaching in like the fall of 2018. And then the next year, Jerry invited me to facilitate a workshop with him. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I am not a coach. What are you even talking about? And he's like, no, 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 it'll be fun. And I remember what helped me feel really comfortable with it was it was a group of nonprofit leaders who were going to be at the same retreat center, 1440 Multiversity, where Jerry and I met. And I felt a lot of kinship to nonprofit leaders because, you know, at the time I was a public servant, I was a state worker. And so there was there was just something that felt really connected about that. And so we get to the workshop and it's like, I don't know, two or three days long. And Jerry said, why don't you do the intro? And then and then I'll I'll talk for a bit. And so, you know, we kind of had some things queued up. And I remember sitting on that stage with him and I started in the intro and I was literally like five, 10 seconds into it. And I felt like I had come home. Mm. And I was like, whoa, what is this? <laughs> this feels really good. Of course, I didn't trust it right away. I was like, oh, that's just, you know, adrenaline, dopamine and whatever, because <laughs> it went really well. <laughs> but the more I thought about it, the more I considered it, the more I started to realize like, this is what I've actually been doing. You know, as director, I've been facilitating these conversations. I've been, you know, giving feedback and trying to create these conditions that will actually help us do this work in a healthier way and in a way that where we can lean into the work that we love. And that's, it felt like that's what I was doing as director. And the more it felt like that, the less it felt like the container of the state police could actually hold what I was growing into and what was emerging for me. 
this is all within the context of working within a law enforcement agency. <laughs> so, which, you know, comes with its own set of challenges with culture, funding, tradition. And it, it, it felt like what I was actually moving towards was out of alignment with the structure that was there. Sure, I could push the boundaries. And sure, I could do all of this. And I did. And I felt I was really proud of that. That is one of the things that I am the most proud of. But I needed something bigger and I needed more space for myself. So mm-hmm. that is ultimately what brought me into coaching was those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Crystal. There's there's a lot of different... We, we might bounce around a little here because I have lots of yeah, yeah. curiosities. But... Something that we were talking about before we actually started recording this conversation, something I was pointing out to you was when I listened to you on other Reboot podcasts, and as a reminder to listener, Reboot is the organization that Jerry is the CEO of and that Crystal now works at. I was speaking to that there seems to be a certain way of being at Reboot that call it belonging is the word that you use like there's a sense of belonging you said there's there seems to be a shared sense of values and if you juxtapose that against what you are saying about being in law enforcement and forensics right that you you love the work but it didn't feel like it could hold the container for who you were becoming so what does like what is the container that reboot is holding there's there's something about when i listen to you or jerry or whoever's on one of the reboot podcasts there's this quality of like ooh i i want some of that <laughs> <sighs> yeah it's a really special place i'll say that you know it starts with you know at reboot we say better humans make better leaders and we all deeply believe that. And, you know, we believe that in our one-on-one work with clients. We believe it in our facilitation work that we do at, at the boot camps. I mentioned the immersive retreat that I went on and, you know, we still have those boot camps. And I don't know how they have quite created this magic, but and and i use that word very intentionally but the magic permeates the relationships that we have with one another and the relationships that we have with ourselves you know it's like it's so hard to describe it's almost like trying to describe how wet water is <laughs> <laughs> um, but this has been a beautiful like curation and tapestry of individuals with very different backgrounds um, who come together. I mean, we we do all have very different backgrounds. And the magic and the tapestry of us really work. And one of my colleagues loves to use a metaphor about jazz music and that we're all like playing our tunes and playing our own instruments. But it's, you know, it's symphonic and it's there's no script that's written for it. It's just the beauty of the music of us coming together. And so I love just hearing you say that it permeates and kind of infuses. It really comes through in the podcast. It really comes through in the expression of the reboot work. And that's what we try to bring 
that that is i mean it is who we are it's not about the doing it's it just is an expression of of us that that shows up I don't know if I really answered your question, but well, I think that if I if I may, with a little reflection here, but sometimes when folks ask me about what coaching is, I have a really hard time because there's there's some there's some basic distinctions you could make. A lot of people ask, "What's the difference between coaching and therapy?" and and a lot of people say therapy is more focused on your past. Coaching is more oriented towards the future that you're building or, or the person you're aspiring to become. Coaching is more action-oriented. Therapy is more understanding yourself. And I don't know. I just, I don't know if words can do justice. That Sometimes, we're, you know, humans, we're cute. We, we're, we try and come up with things that our mind can grasp, but sometimes our mind can't grasp. Like belonging is a tough one to me for, to slap some language around what it is you kind of, there, there are some ways you could describe it, but it's also a felt sense. And it's also, it's something deeper. And, and culture is like that too. So yeah, I think, you know, coaching in a lot of ways is, is helping, to me, it's like helping people make contact with things that are hard to make contact with up here in our head a lot of the time. And I mean, that's, that's how I'm experiencing your answer. It's, it's like, it's a little bit ephemeral, but you can just, when you're there, you, you kind of just know it. Yeah. You know it and you feel it there. There is absolutely the felt sense of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I can feel it even just in hearing the words that you reflected. And I, I'm also just noticing how hard it was for me to put words to it, <laughs> but I could like feel the feeling. And there are certain things for which like, I don't necessarily want to put language around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it feels like a fool's errand. Like uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's like the sense of awe that can just come from it that that doesn't really want language. It just wants the deep feeling mm-hmm. and the heart and the you know the body, the emotion. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, I mean, I I think a lot about belonging. I think a lot about what it feels to be at reboot. And what we're trying to create in the world. And, you know, we talk a lot about love, safety, and belonging. And yeah, I want more. <laughs> I yeah. want more of that in the world. <laughs> yeah. And I want my clients to feel it. And I want our organizations to feel it. And so, yeah, that's that's very much a call. And, you know, as as we're talking about it, I'm also thinking back to to my my previous work and, you know, where I felt belonging and creating that container for like more of it, but also recognizing where there were limits, where there were limits to it. So, yeah. Well, in in a lot of ways, I'm guessing that someone that engages to work with you or is hiring Reboot for facilitation to go over culture, ways of shifting the organization. I'm, I'm imagining that when someone engages Reboot, they know that they're they're digging in a little bit. It's not just a couple of tools and tactics that are, you know, three-step process to make belonging happen. So what is it what does it look like to dig in? Like how how do you as a coach or a facilitator help someone like feel into what belonging means to them? Mm. So it's interesting that you ask this because I haven't really thought about this like really specifically. 
And I'm I'm trying to think like, what conversations do we have around belonging? And is that almost a, does it feel like taboo or too vulnerable mm-hmm. for some folks to even talk about it? And for, for some people like that is the case, but you know, it starts with creating the container. Is there safety there? And then, and then finding out what matters, like what actually matters to the person, what matters to the group and using that as a way in. Oh my gosh, you ask a specific question and I can't remember what it was. And now I feel like I'm drifting. So no, this <laughs> is well, it's establishing belonging is there's a, there's a lot to it, but I think it sounds like the initial point of contact, if establishing belonging feels a little too big, too vulnerable is well, what, like what matters to you? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a great start point. I, one of the first coaching exercises I ever did with the first coach that I engaged to work with was establishing my core values, just writing mm-hmm. down three to five things that mattered to me and describing why they were personally important to me. And in my experience, that takes that takes some digging too. Because I was like, I have no idea what matters to me. <laughs> I'm kind of just doing, isn't doesn't everyone just kind of go you go to college and then you get a job and you do the job and you start a family. Like, I don't know what matters to me. So this is like, could be really courageous work to start opening yourself up to what matters personally to me. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a great question that we do ask. I think most of us ask that question, like, you know, initially, and we stay oriented to what matters to a person. And then, you know, there's the piece where, we also know that love, safety, and belonging are such core human needs. Mm-hmm. And when when you're working with someone who's like, no, I don't need that, like that might deserve a little inquiry. <laughs> like, let's talk about that. <laughs> because I think, you know, if if there's a leader that doesn't prioritize or see those as important, there may be some misalignment within the team or within the group, because a lot of folks need those. Those are core needs. And those are actually what help us have healthy, sustainable teams and organizations. And so, you know, being able to unpack some of those ideas, you know, what really matters to you? You know, how do you feel about this? What is the felt sense of love, safety, and belonging within your team or within your organization? And maybe that's something that we want to lean into. And what is the feedback that that you've gotten you know, have you had a 360? What is your team saying? Because if those are things that are not present, you know, we can work with those. And, you know, again, moving back to our better leaders make better humans, meeting those cores of love, safety, and belonging is part of our shared values. It's part of how we work. And it is integral to to what we do and how we operate. Mm-hmm. So, I think under within there's there's a couple of things. One is the the body has come up several times in this conversation, and I know that you have done some work in somatic experiencing with mm-hmm. our shared friend Kara. Yeah. What there, this is a huge question, but I mean, why do you think it's so important to incorporate the body in in coaching in? making transformation and making changes and and shifts in our life. 
Oh gosh. Well, in terms of transformation and shifts, like the body has to believe it. It's it's not something that just happens in your head. You don't just decide one day, okay, I'm going to transform. Like you have to bring your body along with you. You know, our bodies hold so much history and information and and sensing and you know, we we've we've used the term the felt sense. Yeah. And like that is really important. And so trusting that our bodies also need to be there for our transformational process just feels like, like, yes, I can't imagine doing this work without involving the body in some way. Where I've seen the biggest transformational shifts, either with clients or even within myself, have been once I have allowed my body to come into it. And, you know, sometimes we discount what our bodies might be telling us, you know, often and and thinking back even to my experience in forensics. And I talked about like leveling up and something in me wanting more of a challenge as I as I started to promote. And even with the move into coaching, my body knew before my mind did. My body knew before I could articulate the words, before I had a clear sense, because something felt like it was out of alignment. Something felt like I need something else. And so so it feels really good to trust that sense. And, you know, I work with a lot of clients about like, you know, when they need to make a decision, I'm like, what is your intuition telling you? What is your gut telling you? And I might even, I often invite people to close their eyes to cut out the visual noise and, you know, everything else that they see or or even to come out of their head and come into their bodies. So yeah, like, I, I think it's just such a key part of transformation. And, you know, we know this through neuroplasticity and, you know, so much of the somatic work that there are many amazing practitioners and teachers that are teaching us about. So, yeah. It's just bringing it, it's a really random example that's coming to mind for me, but it, it's illustrative of a lot of the times that my head has been saying yes and, and my body has been saying no. There, I was in a workshop, what was a transformational workshop? It was like, a, if you're familiar with Landmark, this kind of weekend experience where the collective group is examining the beliefs and, and the box that we put ourselves in and that we actually have a choice to adopt a new set of belief systems if we want to transform and change. And I was in the hot seat. This must have been in 2021. So I had started to immerse myself in personal development work, but a lot of what I was doing was in the head and had cognitive behavioral therapy flavors to it, right? Like if I have a negative thought, I can always pattern interrupt and interject with a positive thought. And I think that there's there's a level of change that can happen there, like kind of reframing, shifting, power of positive thinking type of thing. But anyway, I was in the hot seat. I hadn't yet started this podcast. And when I was examining one thing that I wanted in my life, but that I hadn't done yet, I said, I, I want to have a podcast, but I, I haven't started yet. And... I believe the facilitator, at, she asked something along the lines of what's at risk if you were to start a podcast? And my mind immediately went, nothing, I'm ready to go. And she goes, well, you don't have a podcast right now. So there is like, I don't, let's not bypass this. Let's slow this down a little bit. 
it's not, I'm not asking you to say, to ignore the limiting belief or whatever. Like what's, what's here right now. And I think, I don't remember exactly the realization I came to, but if, if I'm in touch with that, what was happening was I wasn't allowing myself to be scared. Mm. I had a lot of fear. Like starting a podcast was really scary for me, but I had learned years bad. Don't do that. Reframe it, jump into something else, take action, but don't feel fear. And that to me speaks a lot about the power of somatic work where my body is over and over again, communicating something to me, right? It's like, this is scary. This is scary, unfamiliar, uncharted territory. Please feel me. And my mind is going, nope, <laughs> on to the next, on to the next. And what happened, what seemed to happen for me over time, this is all me speaking to the efficacy of somatic work. But so what, what seemed to happen to me over time is I would just get exhausted. Like I felt like my mind was driving everything and eventually I'd crash and like randomly burst out into tears or go on these random splurges of like, all right, I'm going to invest in this personal development thing and do this thing. And I need to do that challenge. And it's just like, oh, I couldn't, I was never allowing myself to be where I am. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I say all that to just say <laughs> somatic work is super important. If we, if we try and bypass what our body is communicating to us, whether it's emotions, whatever you want to call it, felt sense, intuition, it's probably going to catch up to us. It seems like it always does. <laughs> I, I so appreciate your sharing that because, you know, that also made me think like, wow, you were, you were actually carrying all this fear in your body mm -hmm. and carrying fear in your body is not just carrying an emotion. It is actually carrying hormones mm. and all sorts of other stuff that you may not even be aware of. And until you actually decide to go there and to let yourself feel it and acknowledge where it is actually sitting in your body and where you are holding it. And, and the fact that it is in your body at all, then you can begin to release it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's that, that subtle shift in like changing that relationship and acknowledging, Oh, this is what is actually here. <laughs> like, now I can actually work with this. I can actually let it go. Wow, yes. That's that's great. Thanks for sharing that piece about the fear around the podcast. I really hear that is like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was, I mean, I hadn't yet started working with the leadership coach that I now work with, but almost my entire journey has been let my body, <laughs> let my body feel what it's communicating to me. Mm -hmm. Stop trying to bypass all the stuff that you're feeling, the anger, the fear. And what I've since learned is that cutting cutting off the emotions I don't want to feel also cuts off the emotions that I do want to feel, right? Joy, sightedness, creativity, like all of that is is blocked off if I'm trying to also block off sadness, fear, anger, even despair, grief, right? Like all, all the different emotions are all communicating something really important. And it seems, it seems like without somatic work, we, we don't really have much access to them. We can, we can start to make sense of it in our head, but it's just not the same as really fully feeling. So true. 
and and that mirrors a lot of what I shared earlier about about my work in forensics and mm. how I actually needed my body to be present in those moments. Yeah. And I needed to actually acknowledge what I was feeling and like see it and know that it's real so that I wouldn't shut it off and become hardened in a way that wasn't helpful and like actually didn't feel good. So, yeah. Yeah. So as as I transition just a little bit here, Crystal, it seems like there've been a lot of different experiences in what's called the last five years that have made a big impact on you. Like I could really feel the way that when you gave that, when you were leading the facilitation or the training with Jerry and you said within the first five, 10 seconds, I just felt like I'm home, that that had a really big impact on you. And I, I would love to hear you another another experience that I'm really curious about because I'm, I'm imagining it combines a lot of the things that I have written down here that we could talk about. There's connection to yourself, connection to nature because you're alone you're outside and you did a vision quest for three days alone in the wilderness without food and that was in may four days four days that's all right no joke i have the longest i fasted and granted it was not away from technology so that's that's a whole other layer to what you what you did in may the longest I fasted without food is about 40 hours. I think I went 41 hours one time. And I think there's there's a lot of, we can learn a lot about ourselves when we break the pattern of doing, you know, three meals a day or whatever the thing that we just assume absolutely has to happen. If we cut that off, we can learn a lot. So this, in a in so many ways, it probably shifted the way that you look at your reliance on technology, reliance on food, reliance on people what would you say with a little bit of reflection afterwards like how do you look at the experience of doing that four day not three day but four day vision quest i'm sorry can you ask me the question one more time yes yeah (laughs) i was overwhelmed by the feeling (laughs) you know when you said that you brought back so much yeah go ahead yeah with, with some reflection what are, what did you most learn from doing that vision quest? And maybe if it's helpful for you, you could talk about like what what made you you seem to answer calls a lot in your life. What was the call? And what did you learn from doing it? Mm. Well, the call was that you know, I've been on this journey of personal exploration for a number of years now and I knew that I knew that I wanted to go out and do a vision fast. I I didn't know when it was going to be, but like I heard the call the call pretty strongly within about the last year. And I think what was calling me to it was just the experience of going away, being quiet, being by myself and seeing what happened. Like really wanting to know what is here for me at this time in my life? And what are the things that have been swirling around that I need to really head towards? Like without the noise and without, I needed to be, I needed to not have any distractions. And I I just, I knew that I wanted to do this and I knew I wanted to be in the desert, which is why I ended up in New Mexico. 
So yeah, I mean, it, it it felt like I knew that I would do it at some point, but I think the readiness really came with the questions that I was holding about like, what now? You know, I left that career. I'm in a new one. I'm stepping more fully into myself. I mean, I had set some intentions around really finding a fuller participation in my own life and in my own like beingness. And so I thought that this experience would help me move towards that. I was also really drawn to just the idea of being, of really being alone and seeing what happened without food. You know, we did have water and electrolytes, but without all of the trappings of everything, no phone, no books, no timepiece. For me, no journal. I'm a big journaler. <laughs> I yeah. love writing and and I knew that the journal would be a crutch for me. And so to be just alone in nature for those 108 hours just felt like this will give me an opportunity to really listen and to hear what I'm being called towards and to see if I'll actually like move towards that. Like, What happens afterwards? Am I actually going to move towards whatever happens? So that's what, those are the things that pulled me toward the experience. And then I can share a little bit about like what it's like, Yeah, <laughs> if that'd be yeah. helpful. And what you learned. Yeah. And what I learned. So for me, one of the things that I learned from my time, from my time alone on the land was I learned what it's really like to feel very stripped down and to have life be like really bare bones and to see what's there when you take everything away. Um, I learned like the economy of movement when you don't, when you're not eating for four days, you know, I, I felt weak. <laughs> I felt weak for, for most of it. It was strange. I didn't particularly feel hungry. I think because I had prepared my body enough and I was like, okay, you're not going to eat for like four and a half days. So don't even think about food. That's like a fool's errand. Don't do that. <laughs> and, but just the economy that comes from like, I'm really weak. I need to conserve my energy in a way that where I can sustain this, but everything was slower. It was like time didn't matter anymore. I didn't have a time piece. So I was like trying to read the sun in the sky. I mean, the days were <laughs> incredibly long. The nights were even longer. And, you know, it just taught me like, what do I actually need to do? And where am I moving in my life? Where is there like thrash that there doesn't actually need to be? Where can I actually slow down and calm down and listen? And so I think that's one of the big takeaways that I that I had. And, you know, I, I did this quest with a group. So even though I was alone, there was the feeling of being supported, you know, having guides that knew where we were having a buddy system where even though we didn't see the other, the other folks on the quest, feeling that support. And, you know, that was, that was really something that I needed to see again and be reminded of in my own life. Mm -hmm. So there was a learning there. And, and then also just getting some affirmation about what I'm doing. I, I have not for one second 
since I left forensics, I have not regretted it in any way. And I'm so glad that I did it. But there was there was actually a, not, a lot that I needed to let go of. And so the ceremony that I was able to engage in, the time away, really helped me see the things I needed to lay to rest. Things from my old life, things that have been sticking with me. So I, those were the learnings that I had that that just felt really big for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you could, if you're willing, what's maybe one or two things that you laid to rest that you put down as, as you really let go of, you know, what was in the past and are emerging into this, this new future, this new crystal. Yeah. Well, one was, you know, it's really hard to do some of the work that I did in forensics and to still carry those stories mm-hmm. with me. And there was a way in which I was carrying some of those stories that there's like an old tape that was running. And, you know, I've had a lot of dreams. I've had a lot of dreams since since I left forensics. In some of those dreams, you know, it's it's about like, all of a sudden I'm thrust back into the old work. I'm asked to respond to a crime scene. I'm asked to help solve something, help figure something out. And that was becoming an old tape. And so those dreams, while they felt like gifts, and while I was always able to show up and do what I needed to do, I really needed to let go. I really needed to let go of of that. And so that's one of the things that I was able to do is just really feel like I came to some closure and really stepped into the final stages of the, the transition around not doing that work anymore and knowing that it's not mine to do. I've known that intellectually mm-hmm. <laughs> since since I stepped away. Like I know it. And I've really been there. But the final step was letting my body know it. Mm-hmm. And so in that experience on this quest for me, that is when my body really knew that that work was done. So that's one of the things that I needed to let go of. <laughs> oh, that I, just lot. watching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing that I needed to step into a new relationship with, and, you know, we've talked a little bit about belonging already, but, you know, as a Black woman, as a descendant of enslaved Africans, you know, who were brought to this country, like, I have felt a lot of ancestor grief and really trying to work with with the feelings that that brings up and and constantly like you know having that live in me having that live in my body and there was a way in which i needed to do some work just so i feel like i can survive so i can survive the um you know intergenerational trauma you know my dad was a black panther in chicago in the 19 19- the 1960s and 70s. And so that very much lives in me. And and I, I've also been doing some client work in, in the South. And the South has been a really difficult place for me to go. And I knew that there was something in that relationship that I actually needed to change. Like there was something calling me like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be in the South, like I can't have this grip me in the way that it currently is. Mm-hmm. And so part of my work. Um, was to really 
hear those voices and um I don't know, think, meditate, have some ceremony around what it means to reckon with the voices and how to have them not be haunting in in a way that is, you know, disturbing my soul. So I think that's that's the other that's the other big thing. And you know, I've been doing been doing a lot of work and like the ancestor call feels big. Um you know, as I watch this this generation, I talked early, you know, the first question you asked me was about who is around my dinner table. Um, and I talked about being with my grandparents and so many of all of their brothers and sisters have passed away. And these are the people that were around that table who would come to our meals. And, you know, even every year as I go back, there are fewer and fewer people. And so I'm thinking a lot about lineage and I have two daughters who are 11 and 15. And so I'm thinking about that. And my dear friend and and colleague has also written a book that I've been a contributor on called Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong by Jerry Colonna, which is forthcoming. It will be out in the fall of this year, but he asked me to contribute to that book. And so I wrote a piece for the afterward. And um, so that was with me when I was out on the quest. Yeah, that's that's the other piece that I felt like I needed to, to manage and do some work around grief work, figuring out how to move forward. So yeah, yeah. it's the other piece of work that was really important for me. What's what's been supportive for you in making contact with things that are really difficult to make contact with? So it be mm. it ancestors that were deeply traumatized as slaves, just the general feeling of being in the South and the enormity of all the terrible atrocities that happened there. When when looking at something that big, it takes me, it probably takes a really powerful healer to be able to hold all of that and be able to be with you as as you confront, for maybe the first time in your life, confront really painful things. Mm. What has been supportive for you? Part of it has been leaning into grief work, Mm -hmm. which is something that I have wanted to avoid like the plague. (laughs) But <laughs> but no, that that has been absolutely critical that I've been on that journey and doing some of that work prepared me. Having borne witness to what I did in, in forensics and sort of holding that work and entering that sacred space, like that reminded me that I know how to do this. Even when I thought I couldn't, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to go back to these difficult places. It was like, wait, I've done this before. I know how to do this. So calling upon some of those skills that I learned early on was really helpful. And I think also, just to draw on another forensic example, there is a way in which because of all of the work that I did, 
my relationship with places has been my relationship with places has been challenged. When I did that sort of work, I went to places all over the state, some even in my own neighborhood. And so, you know, our bodies build an association with these places. And there was a point at which I could feel my world becoming smaller when I would go through these places or go by these places or I'd remember these places. And one of the things that I, as I recognized that my world was becoming smaller, I was like, no, 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 I can't do that. That is not a place I want to be. I need my world to feel big and expansive. And I actually have to be able to reckon and go back. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, several years ago, took myself through, and, and this is this is before I even left forensics, I took myself through a ceremony where I went back to a really challenging place. It was a place of one of the worst crime scenes that I had ever been to. And that, you know, was still like super gripping. And I went back and I went back. The idea for me was to go back in a way that I couldn't go the first time because it was so painful. And I had a dear friend accompany me to go back. And what came up, you know, we drove along this road and we stopped and I was suddenly just overwhelmed with all of the emotions that I couldn't feel the first time. And then I thought, okay, like this is the medicine here. This is the right thing for me to do because it felt weird to go back. I was like, do I even want to do this? This is really bizarre. And, and then I realized as we retraced the road up to this, to this place that I could really feel what I couldn't feel before. And it was so cleansing and so healing. And, you know, she got out of the car and she said, I'm going to wait here while you walk back to the place. And it was a wooded area. And I just remember taking this like slow, deliberate walk. And I was back there, you know, at the scene, but I was like here in the present moment. And I was just noticing what was there. And, you know, I touched the rock wall. I touched the dirt. I could see all the greenery. And that, to be for me to be able to go back in that way, just felt really healing. And so how that applies to now is that experience taught me that I could go back to a difficult place, that I didn't have to avoid it, and that it was possible. And, you know, I was supported. I had the conversation that I couldn't have. I allowed myself to really feel in, you know, full three, four dimensions, all the things I couldn't feel before. Mm. And that was what I needed. And so now, you know, fast forward to current time, as I think about this journey with, with my ancestors and with this reckoning, I feel like it is, I have more capacity to go back. And I don't know what it'll look like. I mean, there's actually kind of a pilgrimage journey that, that I'll make during one of these trips in the coming months, but I feel like it's going to, it's going to, touch on some of those things that I learned a few years ago. 
just bringing some ceremony to it and and approaching it with reverence and also knowing that I am supported and I'm in the present moment and that things are different for me now. So that's that's the heart that I want to bring in as I go back. Yeah. Well, Crystal, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I have, there's a couple of things that feel important for me to underscore about what you've shared. And I think one of the one of the first things I'm in touch with here is I I know a decent amount of people in my life who have quote unquote not been through anything traumatic in their life. And what I'm hearing, like this is what what's important about what you just shared is that we all, and this is by no means diminishing, uh, some people have been through way harsher, way more traumatic. So I am not belittling that. But someone who is dismissive of, I haven't really been through anything in my life. If you go back one generation, two generations, we we all have something that is probably living within us that is unconsciously influencing the way that we act. And and what I'm hearing from what you said is that uh, at one point it's unbearable. And so the adaptive move is to not feel the thing, whatever the pain is, we, we just avoid it, but it gets stuck in us if we don't make our own repair and healing move around it. And so in a, another way of, of saying, building the capacity to be with it is revisiting it from a later point where you where you've already built more skills more literacy around healing what what seems to happen on the other side of that is you you're able to let go of that stuckness that that lived in you which isn't to forget about it and say that it never happened it, it actually gives you more strength to look at, at other hard things right so it's like I, i'm saying this as a triple underscore of how important the work that you're doing is that I think we could all learn from it. Every single person listening is in some way influenced, but because we're all part of the water we are swimming in as a society is one of racism, colonialism, patriarchy, right? There's, there's so met, there's so much oppression and trauma that has happened over the years that it's unfortunately it, it's pretty inescapable. Even if it didn't happen directly to us, it is influencing all of us, is influencing the systems that we're operating in, the organizations we work in, everything. And so that healing work is almost, to me, it's mandatory if you want to live a full, enriched, vital life. Yeah. I, I So well said. And to recognize that like, other people might need this. Mm -hmm. One may not feel like they need it, but like the importance of doing the work and and recognizing what it might unlock is is really big, and it gives us so much capacity. It's a capacity building move. You know, we are all humans that will experience suffering at some point. And if we ourselves aren't directly experiencing some sort of traumatic suffering, someone in our lives will. And do we have the capacity to see them and support them and hold them in that? You know, that's that's part of this work. And, and I love that, you know, just drawing the parallel between like 
even if it's not this, it's it's like it's something else. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, as someone who has worked with what the worst of the worst of what we as humans can do to one another, I think there is tremendous healing work that we are all capable of and that we all have the capacity for. And that's what this journey feels like to me. And so regardless of how you want to, how one might want to take the journey or what relevance it may feel like they have or don't have, like, yeah, just walking towards it. Just if, if this earth was filled with humans who all had that skill and capacity things would feel so different. So different. <laughs> well said. And and what I was going to say, which you, you've really summed up there, is this feels like the path forward for us as a species and the planet. If, mm-hmm. if we had, what, what a world it would be if we all had that capacity. Mm-hmm. So as we move towards the, the back end here, Crystal, I, I've been having such a blast, but I know that we're pushing on the time mm-hmm. boundary. So... Is, is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today that feels important for you to bring into the conversation now? No, not really. <laughs> we covered a, yeah, we covered so much. It feels really good. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, I just have a, a couple more things that I want to yeah. run through with you. And mm-hmm. every episode, I always raise awareness for an organization of my guest choice. And please forgive me if I mispronounce it, but you've selected the organization, is it Econe? Econ? Econi Ranch. Econi Ranch. Yeah. So if you, could you say a word or two about Econi Ranch? Yeah, this is the Econi Ranch is in South Central Washington. And the mission of the organization is to provide outdoor experiences and space for folks who love the earth deeply. They have, you know, stewardship of this incredible watershed. There's a beautiful canyon. They run a summer camp for kids and an equestrian camp and lots of educational opportunities for organizations and for groups who want to be out, you know, out on the land in nature. And there's also a natural burial cemetery that's there. I got to I got to do a program there uh, last year that was really transformational for me. It was actually a workshop of looking into the face of death. Mm. And so it was very, very fitting that that we had this natural burial cemetery to be in the midst of. But I really love and appreciate their work. And they are a nonprofit. They do fundraisers every year. Their Their goal is to, in perpetuity, keep that land and protect it. They run this wonderful, just the way that they steward and care for the land is is pretty amazing. They're totally self-sufficient in terms of power and all of that. Mm. And it's just, it's just a, a wonderful place. And it spoke to my heart to be on that land. And so I always put out the word to support them so that they can keep on their mission of stewardship. Yeah. Well, as a fellow lover of the outdoors and and the healing power of the outdoors, I will certainly be donating. I'll make sure in the intro that I mention Econi Ranch as well and enlist the support of the listeners. And just a couple more rapid fire yes. questions yeah. that I, I'd love to ask. So sure. what's what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> Ordinary everyday moment. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Sorry. I know these are rapid fire. Take your time. Seeing my kids smile. Hmm. Seeing the energy that they wake up with in the morning, you know, before the day has gotten too oppressive and crushing. (laughs) Yeah, that that early morning innocence and knowing that there is a day ahead to unfold, that brings me tremendous joy. Beautiful. So I just have two more. I was just going to ask where where would you invite folks to connect with you online? Folks can connect with me on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. They can also check out, I think I have a a coaches page on the Reboot website. And I don't know what else you want there. (laughs) That's all we need. So LinkedIn, the LinkedIn page and the the Reboot website. So yeah, LinkedIn, Reboot. Mm -hmm. I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. I'll link to Jerry's book, which isn't out yet, Reunion. And you mentioned Krista Tippett reboot the organization on being so i'll I'll link to those in the show notes and Mm -hmm. the final question that i ask in every interview crystal the podcast is called mike's search for meaning and so i would love to know in your words what it means to live a meaningful life living a meaningful life in my words is about living with the fullest expression of our being, of who we are. Whatever brings us joy, whatever that untouchable, unshakable core of us is, like to be able to get in there and then to have that expressed in the way that we show up in the world, that feels super meaningful. Mm. I want that for everyone. Yes to unshakable core. Yes to joy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and also just a shout out to awe. I am, mm. I am reading Dacher Keltner's new book about awe. And I'm like really enjoying listening to it right now. And so I think that's another piece of the magic is just like finding awe in, like if I can find a little piece of that every day in my life, that feels really good. And I am grateful for it. And I love it. And I love waking up in the morning, just knowing that I'm going to find a little piece of that, regardless of the day. Yeah. Well, awe seems to pair well with your your initial loves of curiosity, mm-hmm. inquiry, and, and mystery. So the beautiful way to end the conversation, Crystal. And I, I so appreciated all the different directions that we took this conversation. And I, if you can't tell, I just think the work that you're doing is so important. And the way that you're showing up in your life is a beautiful model to how we can face, like Glennon Doyle says, we can do hard things. And I'm hearing that in a lot of what you're sharing. We can do hard things and hard things make us more resilient, more capable humans, more alive. Yeah. Right. Yes. And being more alive is like, yes, that's, that is one way that I look at life is how can I feel more alive? And, and one way is, is doing those hard things that you, that you've been putting off. And so, Mm. yeah, I just, I I appreciate your willingness to step into this space bravely and vulnerably and openly. It's a gift to me. 
to witness the way that you look at your life and your work. It's a gift to anyone who tuned in. And uh, I'm really grateful that Kara connected us. Oh, me too. Me too. It was so good to be with you and share a little bit about myself and yeah, just hear your beautiful reflections as well. Mm. So thank you. So appreciate it. You are so welcome. And to all the listeners, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.